Good to see you all this morning. Lovely to uh, be together on this uh, Sunday. Recognise that the weather is hot, uh, but we are enjoying the heat, aren't we? We're grateful to it, for, to God for it. And uh, we're going to cherish it while we have it, because this time next week we'll be saying, isn't it cold? <laughs> isn't it cold? <laughs> if only it was warm. If only we had summer. So that will be forgotten. We're looking the, this morning at the Galatian epistle, and uh, we've been doing that for some time. If you've been with us, you will know that uh, I've been working through this Galatian epistle. And uh, if you want to look back over the uh, series, you can find the series on the, uh, the website. You can find the series... Uh, on WhatsApp, if you're onto WhatsApp, and uh, but we're in chapter four. We're in chapter four of the Galatian epistle, and uh, I want to begin reading from the last part of the third chapter, <clears throat> verse twenty-six in the third chapter, Galatians chapter three, then from verse twenty-six, in order to get it into context. The verses we're going to pay particular attention to this morning verses 12 to 16. But let's get it into context from verse 26 of chapter 3. Where we read, <clears throat> You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from the slave. Although he owns the whole estate, he is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to the weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved? By them all over again, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. And then these verses particular, our attention this morning from verse 12. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness 
that I first preached the gospel to you, even though my illness was a trial to you. You did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if you were, as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have turned, you have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? And may God add his blessing to the reading from his precious word this morning. So here in verses 12 to 20 of this Galatian epistle, the apostle Paul is changing his tone, changing his tone in this letter to the Galatian church or churches. Churches of Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra and Derb. These are Christians in trouble in these churches. They're in danger of turning from the true gospel that Paul has preached to them on that first missionary journey. You could read about that in Acts 13 and 14. There's a danger of turning from the true gospel uh, of salvation by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, and turning back to a gospel or a different gospel that contaminates the true gospel with works and rituals and rules and regulations. As soon as you add a rule or a ritual or say, Jesus saves but, as soon as you say but, you're into the heresies of the Galatian church. You are into Arminianism, as we would call it today and how repulsive those teachings are in the eyes of God, and how repulsive those teachings were to the Apostle Paul, that people would turn to a different gospel. They would dare to say, after Christ had died upon the cross and rose from the dead, that they would say, oh, Jesus isn't quite enough. He's not quite enough. You've got to do this or you've got to do that. You've got to behave in a certain way in order to be saved. How obnoxious in the nostrils of God can I, if I can put it that way, how sad it is when that happens. And we find that again and again as we deal with other churches, we deal with so-called Christians, people who hold those type of views. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I believe in grace, but I don't believe that Jesus is totally sufficient to save to the uttermost. And because the churches are in such danger here, and because it is such an obnoxious uh, different gospel that these Galatians, uh, these uh, Judaizers are preaching, this is why Paul is very strong in his attitude. That's why he begins this epistle the way that he does. That's why he behaves and he the language is so strong in this particular epistle at the beginning. The language of the early chapters. In writing to other churches, Paul finds words of encouragement. He finds words of commendation to them. In the first Corinthian epistle, for example, a church that was in trouble, a church that had um, problems with uh, with morality, and there were there were difficulties within that church. But Paul was still able to say of to them, "I always thank my God for you because of His grace 
given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. So he was giving thanks for them, he was encouraging them, even though he had some difficult things to say to them later on. Again, the Ephesian church, the church at Ephesus, chapter 1, verse 15, we find Paul again encouraging them. He says, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Again, if you go to the Philippian letter, and the Philippian letter was written to a church that was being troubled by the Judaizers. Paul later on says to the, to the Christians at Philippi, he says, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evil workers, those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about the Judaizers, the same people that are troubling the Galatian church. But in that Philippian letter, in chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In my all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In the Colossian letter, when Paul writes to the Colossians in verse 3 of the first chapter, we always give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people. Great encouragement. That is Paul's attitude. That is the way that Paul likes to treat his Christian friends. He wants to encourage them at first, but that is not what we find here in the Galatian epistle. Here is uh, in the Galatian epistle, we find that he describes them as foolish Galatians. Foolish Galatians, bewitched by the simpering, religiosity and legalism of these Judaizers who are trying to destroy the gospel and bring people back into legalism. These Galatians who have forgotten how they came to faith, they've forgotten the, the message, they, they haven't protected it, they haven't uh, made sure that it was uh, not allowed to be tampered with. They are foolish Galatians. In verse 20 here we find Paul saying, How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. He doesn't want to be the, 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 the one who comes along and uh, tells them off and has these very hard things to say to them. But he needs to do that because of the situation there is at Galatia. Now, Paul, as we've seen, if you've been with us over the series, uh, this series, you see how Paul has defended the true gospel vigorously in chapter 3 and chapter 4. He's defending the gospel vigorously, yeah, breaking down the arguments of the legalists, showing that salvation is by grace alone and has always been by grace alone. He uses the example, as we saw, of Abraham, who simply believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. What did Abraham believe in? He believed in the coming saviour. He didn't know that much about him, but there were certain things that happened in his life that, that pointed towards the coming Christ when he 
was going to sacrifice his son, you remember? There was, uh, that was a, a, an illustration of Jesus going to the, to the, to the cross. And uh, of course God stops him and gives a, a ram from the thicket, a, a substitute. But all these were pictures for Abraham of the coming saviour, the one who would come. And this shadowy Jesus, who he, he didn't know by name, but he believed God's promise, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. And of course, King David was the same. And right the way through the Old Testament, we find Old Testament Christians getting saved. How did they get saved? They got saved through faith in Messiah, faith in the coming Saviour who would die for the sins of the world. That's how uh, it would happen. But now there is a clear change, as I say, in the tone of this letter. Because Paul is seeking now some kind of reconciliation with these Galatians. In verse 12, listen to it again. He said, I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. He's, he's given them the hard talk. He's given them the hard stuff. He's given them the, the teaching that he needed to, to give them. He's been clear. He's been firm with them. But now he wants to change his attitude now he wants to be reconciled to them paul has um, already reminded the galatians in the uh, first chapter of his uh, background and his testimony and that's important in verses uh, 13 of uh, the first chapter there paul says uh, for you have heard of my previous way of life in judaism how intensely i persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. He's explaining where he came from. He's explaining his background. He's just explaining his life before he came to Christ, before the, uh, the Damascus Road experience. And then in chapter 2, he tells us what happens after the Damascus Road experience, after he's encountered the living Christ on the Damascus Road. He says in chapter 2, verse 19, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So here he's saying, he's explaining to them what his life was like before the cross and after the cross. And he's explaining that there isn't really much difference or any difference, in fact, between him and them. Become like me, says Paul here in this epistle, because I became like you. I came from a background of legalism, says Paul. I thought the path of, to, to God was through legalism, for, was through religion. I was full of pride, but I had to come to that place, says Paul, where you, uh, where you are. Without my Jewish legalistic roots, without anything to, to credit me with, with, with any standing before God, to a place where I, I counted all my religion and all my righteousness as worthless garbage, knowing that no amount of religion, no amount of good works could ever, could ever save me. That classic description Paul gives in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, he says, if someone else thinks they have reason to put 
confidence in the flesh I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, uh, as to zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever was my gain to be, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus and being found in him, uh, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and on the basis of faith. You see, every Christian journey begins in the same way. No one comes to Christ in any other way than through, the, through some kind of Damascus Road experience where we encounter the living Christ and we see ourselves as we are. And all our self-righteousness and all our self-confidence is shredded as we realize that we are sinners in the sight of a holy God. Some people, they, they talk about, well, I, I've seen Jesus and I've had an encounter with Jesus. But it hasn't changed them. It hasn't left them ruined, if I can put it that way. It hasn't left them bankrupt as far as their own righteousness. It hasn't left them saying, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. As Isaiah said, that in that so-called encounter they've had with Jesus, nothing's changed. They haven't realized who they are. They haven't been destroyed in terms of their own dependence upon their own righteousness. When the Apostle Paul encountered Christ, he recognized that there was nothing in him that there was of any merit, despite all his religiosity, there was nothing in him of any merit. He was helpless. And he was as much in need of grace as these Galatians. He, he came to that place where the Galatians had come to. There was no difference. He's saying here in this passage, he's saying, I know what it's like to be you. I know what it's like to begin the Christian journey. I know what it's like to have my righteousness shredded. I know what it's like to have to stand up for the gospel. I understand you. He's saying, I'm not above you. I'm not better than you. I can sympathize. I can empathize with you because I have been there with all your struggles and with all your arguments and with all your confusion and with all the criticism that you've had, I have been lambasted by the Judaizers just as you have. I have been marginalized and, uh, and left without resources by the Jews. I, I, I have been criticized by the Gentiles with their Gentile philosophies, etc. I have been there. I understand where you're coming from. You know, apostles like Paul, pastors, elders, youth leaders, Sunday school teachers. You know, we have, we have been there. We all began in, in, in the same place. Paul, for all his strong words and his rebuke towards the Galatians, is, is not on some high horse here. He's not using any credentials here. It's not a holier-than-thou attitude. These words are in love. He's saying, I've been there, but the way, way I'm talking to you now is because I care about you. Proverbs chapter 27, verses 5 and 6, listen to this. 
Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds of a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplied kisses. You know, sometimes you can say the nicest things to people as they are on their journey to hell, on their road to a lost eternity, or you can, you can bite the bullet and you can say the strong things to them in love that they need to hear in order that they come to faith in Christ. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying the strong things because he cares about them. They may misunderstand, they may not like it, they may think of him as an enemy, but those are the things that he's responsible for saying. Romans chapter 2, verses 20, sorry, verse 19, we read these words as he speaks to the Romans. He said, if you are convinced that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? If you think you're a teacher, if you think you're a, a leader, if you think you've got the right to talk to others, have you been taught those things yourself? Teach them yourself, first of all. You know, every so often you hear of a young man, and it's nice to hear it in one sense, but some young guy get up and say, well, I, I'm, I want to be a pastor. I want to be a pastor. You know, do you? Really? <laughs> really? You want to be a pastor? Do you know what the cost it is of being a pastor. Do you know what it, it takes to be a pastor? And I'm not, I'm not blowing any trumpets here because what I'm saying is that when God calls a man to ministry, he, he, he takes him apart before he puts him together again. Now, I've been in the ministry 40 years, over 40 years now, and I can tell you that to be a pastor, God takes you apart. You can't get away with anything. You know, God will actually deal with you in a more severe way than he will deal with other people because... He has to bring you down to the place where you look at other people and you say, well, I, I, I may tell you that you need to do this, but I'm certainly not criticizing you because I, I've probably been there. I've probably done that. I've probably made those mistakes. I'm not, I'm not on any high horse here. And I'm saying that to you this morning. I'm not on any high horse here. There are, there are things sometimes that we have to say as pastors, as leaders, things that people don't always like the things that we say. But we say them because we love people. We say them because we care. We say them because it's our responsibility. And sometimes we're going to make enemies out of people by, by doing that. Sometimes people are going to be offended by that. But we have to do it because that is our calling and that's what we are called. And it's the same for other folk who have ministries, different types of ministries in, in, in the church. We are called to say it as it is, we are called to try to do it in a reconciliatory way. But we need to do it, we need to. Paul is, Paul is not saying here, do what I say. Paul is saying, do what I do. I have been there, I've been that way, and I've come through, and I'm on my way to heaven now, and I want you to follow me, do what I do now, as I progress towards heaven. Be sure, as I am sure, be confident, as I am sure, in the finished work of Christ and be free from legalism that surrounded the law of Moses, as I am free now and recognize that freedom, become free, remain free, understand why you are free, guard your freedom, live up to your inheritance. 
Recognize that you have come of age. Recognize that you are free to live the Christian life. That's what Paul is saying. I've been there. You've been there. Now come to where I am because I am free in Christ. And you should be free and you should remain free. <clears throat> now Paul's given us a bit of a lesson in, uh, in reconciliation here or how to manage recon reconciling situations in verse 12 we read on you have done me no wrong says paul you have done me no wrong and in saying that he's assuring them that he holds no resentment or grudge you see as we read in the first two chapters of galatians paul has to defend himself he has to defend his reputation he has to defend his apostleship why because the judaizers have rubbished it and these Galatians have listened to them and they've taken on board what these Judaizers have said. And they're tittle-tattling about Paul and they're saying, well, perhaps he really isn't an apostle. Perhaps we really shouldn't listen to him and all, all of that thing. And this when Paul writes to them, he's hurt or has been hurt in his heart. But as he comes to chapter 4, he says, you have done me no wrong. But they say, well, hang on, Paul. We have done you no wrong. Look at the way we've treated you. Look at the way we've rubbished your apostleship. Look at the way we've tittle-tattled at you behind your back. How can you say we have done you no wrong? And Paul says, I can't remember any of that. You're forgiven. That's what forgiveness is. We spoke about this on Thursday, didn't we, at the prayer meeting. If you were there at the prayer meeting, we were pointing out that when, when God for, for, forgives, he forgets. As far as the east is from the west, so our transgressions have been removed from us. And sometimes the enemy churns up those uh, memories of bad things we've done in the past. And he just loves to, to churn them up, doesn't he? Sometimes we get into a bit of a state with it. We go to the Lord and we say, Lord, you know, remember those things that I did? I'm, I'm really sorry. And God is saying, what things? What things? We're under the blood of Jesus, you see. When they're under the blood of Jesus, God can't see them anymore. Doesn't mean that we not accountable to live like good lives and uh, as a father loves his children so God chastises but he can't remember those sins anymore because they're under the blood of Jesus they're dealt with Paul is saying that there is no hidden agenda here there are no brick bats in this in, in, in this message that I'm, I'm sending to you it's, it's a message of earnestness it's a message out of love you have done me no wrong I can't remember anything in terms of that Paul is a forgiven man and he can freely and readily forgive. I wonder this morning, can you readily and freely forgive? You know, I hate, I hate to hear Christians say, you know, I, I, I've forgiven but I can't forget. I, I think that, that's, that's, that's very sad indeed. Or, or some Christian who said, I, I can't forgive that person for that. Really? Really? Have you been to the cross? Have you seen what Jesus did for you? Now, come from there and tell me that you can't forgive. Because he forgave everything. Paul had been to the cross. He'd been to it on the Damascus Road. He met the living Christ. He see those hands with the scars in them and knew what Jesus had done for him. He said, I can forgive anybody. I can forgive the Galatians. I can forgive the tittle-tattle. I can forgive their, their behavior. I, I can't even remember it. Because I'm forgiven. They're forgiven. Because we're forgiven, whoever is forgiven. 
Paul also reminds them here of this, the remarkable love that the Galatians had for him. He hasn't mentioned it at the beginning of the letter because he's had to go into the doctrinal and other issues uh, as a priority. But here he remembers the love that they have for him. In verse 13, he says, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is the blessing of me now? Can I, I, can, I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemies by telling you the truth? You see, on the journey to uh, the Galatian, on that first uh, Galatia, on the first uh, missionary journey, Paul became ill, and uh, we don't know quite what the illness was. It possibly it was malaria. He could have been uh, contacted uh, whilst travelling in the uh, the lower swampy uh, areas of Pamphylia, and uh, he decides to uh, to go up. It seems to the to the higher ground of, of the region of Galatia in order to uh, feel better and get better, and at the same time he would be able to minister there. Now whatever his illness was, it was an unpleasant illness. It was an inconvenient illness. But the Galatians had treated him with love and kindness and concern. Sickness was often considered a judgment of God and good health a sign of God's favour. If you go to some churches or listen to some preachers, that's what they still believe, that if you are sick, somehow God has uh, got something against you. If you are healthy, it's a sign of God's favour. That's certainly not what Jesus taught in John 9, verse 1. The disciples had this attitude. They came to him one day as he, Jesus, went along. He saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but it, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. These Galatians, to their credit, did not see the illness of Paul as a sign of God's displeasure. Now the Jews would have loved to have said to the Galatians, well, you know, this guy who's come amongst you preaching this so-called gospel. Look how ill he is. He can't possibly be in God's favour because he's not well and he's, uh, you know, uh, and, and, you know, God would not treat a man like that who's, uh, who's a man of God. And, but they didn't, they didn't take that on board. They, they, they saw right through that. And they recognised that Paul was a man of God. And it was not God's displeasure. And I have to say again this morning that don't ever be put, put taken in by the so-called uh, prosperity preachers. Don't ever ever think that because you are uh, unwell that it's uh, that it's a sign of God's uh, uh, God uh, having something against you. Uh, and if you get better, and, and we've been talking this morning about wonderful healings, and that's wonderful, and God does heal. But if you if you don't get healed or don't get healed as quickly as you'd like to, then don't think of it as being something that. You know, you haven't prayed enough or you haven't got faith enough because that is not the Apostle Paul. He was a man who had great faith, but he wasn't healed. In fact, the Bible tells us later on he, he had a messenger from Satan, a, 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 a thorn in his flesh. And he prayed to God three times to take it away. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And sometimes 
as Jesus said on that occasion to that man, what happened so, is so that the work of God might be displayed in him. And so it was that the Apostle Paul was his thorn in the flesh. Paul may have suffered eye problems. We're not sure exactly what the problems were. that He, he suffered a, 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 as malaria, for example, sometimes attacks the optic nerves causing uh, color uh, recognition, loss of color recognition, atrophy or even blindness. Uh, this theory might be substantiated by Paul's closing remarks in chapter 6, 11, where we read him saying, see with what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. We'll discuss that when we get to the end of the chapter more, but that could have been why he was writing in that way with large uh, letters. Naturally speaking, there was nothing attractive about Paul. Naturally speaking, he wasn't a good, he wasn't a good preacher in terms of being an orator. Apollos was a great preacher. You Apparently, he was famous for his preaching, uh, Apollo, but Paul wasn't like that. He wasn't a, a kind of Billy Graham, sort of tall, handsome guy with, uh, who was able to, uh, to get his words together as a way he wanted to. No, but that was the... That was, Despite that, the people loved him and they recognized the gospel. Neither were these uh, Galatians influenced through the opposition and the intimidation of the Jews in that region. Even though Paul was being buffeted by the Jews uh, as he goes through the region of Galatia, and again you can read it in the 13th and 14th chapter there, even though there was all this opposition these Christians, these Galatian Christians, they weren't intimidated. They stood firm at that time. They readily accepted the message as coming from Christ and Paul as being Christ's apostle, Paul, uh, Christ's emissary, the one who was sent. Now this was clearly a strong relationship that they had in those early days and this is why Paul is so hurt that they've once walked so well together and now they're not walking together and he needs to say these things to them. He longs to have them back. He longs to have that close fellowship again. He says, have I become your enemies by telling you the truth? Will you be offended by the gospel of free grace in a world that finds it so insulting? And as we read earlier in that passage in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolish, or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, it's foolishness. The world says the gospel's foolishness. And when we preach the gospel, the world, as a, generally speaking, will consider us to be enemies. They don't like what we say. When we tell them that their religion hasn't got any benefit to them, but it's only Christ who can save. That's offensive to people. People don't want to hear that. They say, oh, but I've uh, followed this leader or that leader all my life. Uh, I can't give that up. And it's offensive for you to tell me that, that those leaders have nothing to offer in the way of salvation. That can be offensive to people. If we say to people, you know, who are uh, of the persuasion that somehow the world was, was created inside of some big bang and there, there is no God, to, to talk to them about a, a God and to tell them that they're wrong and that there is a creator, that those things are offensive. Even to so-called Christians, people who, are, who call themselves Christians, 
and they, they go to church perhaps and they act in a religious way and they wear a cross around their neck and they do all the religious things. They might carry a big Bible under their arms. They might pray every night. They might go to this uh, ceremony or that ceremony. And, uh, and when you tell them, you know, but, but Jesus is the only way, that's offensive. That's offensive. They don't want to talk to you perhaps uh, anymore or might not be able to, 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 to do that. When, when, you, when you tell people that to follow Jesus means to carry a cross, pick up your cross and walk with him, it means to live a, a life that's following Jesus. Young people, it means to live pure lives, live holy lives, live lives um, that, that are acceptable in God's sight in relationships and sexual relationships and everything else. When you tell people that, that's offensive. That's offensive to a lot of people. And we have to accept the fact that it's offensive. And Paul had to accept the fact that his, his, when he said things that were true, but things were hard, things that people didn't want to hear, it was offensive. But he said, I have to say them. I have to say them because it's important. I have to say them because one day I want to stand before God and say, I tried to get that person to heaven. Or I tried to tell them about you, but you're the one that gets into heaven. I tried to tell them but they wouldn't listen. I tried to tell them the only way was Jesus, but they wouldn't listen. I tried to tell them that he was the only saviour and you can't add other religions to it because to do that is to nullify the Christian faith. I don't want to be standing there and to find someone in a lost eternity who could turn around to me and say, you never told me. You never told me Jesus was the only way. You never told me there wasn't another way. You never told me I was all right. You know, you never told me it wasn't all right to continue in the religious observances that I followed. We have a responsibility. But as we do carry out our responsibility, we make enemies. I feel for Alistair on the doors here. Day after day, he goes on the doors in the streets in Birmingham. The message that he preaches is offensive. It's offensive. People ridicule, people laugh, people shout, people get angry. It's making enemies, as it were. But hopefully in time, those enemies will be touched in their hearts and become friends. Listen, one more text as we close here. Philippians 3, verses 17. Paul's saying something similar as he's saying here in Galatians chapter 4, verses 17, join together in following my example, he says to the Philippians, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. As I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their, destruction, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Here's the example. There's the example. Paul could say by his life, follow me. I've been where you are. Now come where I am and enjoy the joy 
that I know. And as Christians, we need to take up that challenge. Yeah, we're going to face opposition. We need to sometimes recognize that in preaching the gospel, we're going to make enemies, but also we can bring people into freedom, bring people into that place. And the more our lives shine for Jesus, the more people are going to want to follow us. The more people will want to say, what is it that you have? Because I want Jesus. I need Jesus for myself. If this is Jesus, I want Jesus. May God bless his word to our hearts. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And we just pray, O oh God, that uh, we may be like the Apostle Paul. That we may learn the lessons as we've come to the foot of the cross, knowing that there is only one salvation, holy and completely bought for us through Jesus Christ. And uh, Lord, we pray that we may live in the freedom that you have offered and give to us. And that we may live up to being the people you want us to be. Those sons and daughters of the living God. That we may radiate and shine your love in this world. That people may see us and want to follow you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.